Hey everyone, Stephen here. So before we move on to the show, I wanted to take a moment to give a really quick introduction to this series. So over the next two episodes, Danielle, my co-host, and I discuss the statement on social justice and the gospel, which recently came out from certain evangelical leaders this past summer. As we were discussing this, it very quickly became clear that we were way in over our heads, that we were very much out of our depths talking about this stuff. And uh, especially when the topic of race and privilege and repentance came up, it, you know, it, it became obvious, especially for me, I think Danielle was a bit more clear-sighted during this conversation than I was, but it became obvious for me that I was not as clear-headed as I thought I was on this subject, that I didn't know as much as I thought I did about this topic. So we were verbally processing our thoughts. We were we were working through this and, and articulating stuff in conversation that maybe we had thought about, read about, but had never articulated before. And as a result, I say things that in retrospect, I think are just not true. I, I think that I said things that are factually false. And, and so because of all this, I was really nervous to, re to release this show because we're two white people just fumbling through the topic of race and privilege in the United States. And, you know, the uncomfortable irony here being that there was not a black person in the room. Danielle is a woman. I am gay. So we do have those minority experiences. But when the topic turned to race, the absence of someone who is actually a person of color there in the room was very conspicuous, especially in retrospect. I'm I'm nervous about releasing this show because I don't want to hurt anyone. I don't want my fumbling, dumbass processing to wound anyone. I've decided to go ahead and release this series, though, because maybe for someone out there, it is helpful to watch two clueless white people verbally process through this. But it won't be helpful for everyone. And if you're one of those people for whom it won't be helpful, maybe you are a person of color and you just don't want to deal with ignorant, clueless, dumbasses like me and Danielle, that's fine. Please stay clear. You don't need to listen. And we respect that. If there is one thing that came of this conversation for me personally, it was the revelation of just how much I don't know just how more clueless I really am than I, just how much more clueless than I thought I was on this subject. I don't think I realized the depth of my ignorance until I started talking about it in this show. And that for me is a positive thing. That for me is a good step forward. So I am committing myself to learning more about the subject of race and privilege so that when I do have more conversations, I can speak more clearly about them and more compassionately and more justly. I don't feel like I consistently spoke with clarity and compassion through this two-part series. And so I thought that I would just share a few of the resources that I have found helpful. If you happen to be white and struggling through these issues, uh, trying to understand the topic of race and privilege in America, then I invite you to do the same. I invite you to be a student with me. And so some of the resources that I have personally found helpful, uh, the podcast Minority Corner, 
which is uh, with two people of color, one woman, one gay guy, and they just discuss minority issues. And it's a really enlightening and helpful show for me. The other is a book, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. Uh, This was really the first book that opened my eyes up to it. I was just so sheltered from... (laughs) You know, my privilege just sheltered me so much from the reality of what people of color live through in this country. And and Michelle Alexander's book was the first book that really opened my eyes to it. I highly recommend it. It's about mass incarceration of people of color, especially men of color. I also recommend White Rage by Carol Anderson, as well as Carol Anderson's other books and interviews on Uh, She does lots of podcast interviews. I highly recommend all of the interviews that she has done. There's a really great episode on the liturgists called Black and White, which is kind of a good primer for understanding race within America. And finally, I have found the videos of ContraPoints to be particularly helpful. ContraPoints is a trans woman who tackles issues of philosophy and social justice and kind of uh, responds to the far right and to the alt-right and just a very skillful narrator, a very skillful educator when it comes to things like this issue. So she has several videos that I found particularly helpful in understanding race in America. I'm going to link all of this uh, in the show notes for this episode. All this to say, I am an eager student. And I'm sure that I got a lot wrong in this series. And um, I'm sure that I got a lot wrong, but I'm willing to learn and I want to keep learning. And I invite other white people and I invite other people of privilege to learn with me. If you know of any more resources that I haven't mentioned, and I'm sure there are a ton that I don't know about. But if you know of any more resources, please let me know. Please, you know, share them on Twitter, email them to me, share them on Facebook, on Instagram. I would love to hear back. All right. Well, I think that's everything. On with the show. This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Long. I am here with the one and only fabulous Danielle King for this series, my co-host. Aww. (laughs) So, by the way, quick announcement here at the top. This is the first Sacred Tension episode on the new setup. Uh, It's so cool. Yeah, it's Mm -hmm. really awesome. New interface, new mics. I am no longer on the shitty old Blue Yeti mic, which was a great mic. It took me through this first year of podcasting, but I'm very happy to be done with it. It did its duty. Yes, Mm -hmm. so now... Much more professional setup, much better sound quality, and it's largely thanks to my patrons who provided me with the finances to get this new setup. So if you want to keep supporting this show, I really can't do it without my patrons. If you want to donate to this show, that would be great. It's what keeps this show alive. You can go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long to learn more about that. All right. Well, so today we are talking about a new statement and 
Uh, it is the statement on social justice. Being a social justice warrior myself, I thought that we would we are going to take a look at this statement. I'm a I'm an asshole, and I haven't done any of the research for this. <laughs> Danielle has done all the research for for this episode, but neither of us have yet read the statement. So no. So she's done research on like the peripherals, but uh, we have not yet read the statement. We're going to read it fresh on the show. And I warned Stephen that this could be dangerous because I'm probably going to get pretty angry. She's going to turn into Danielle <laughs> Maybe. with a Y-E-L-L. Maybe. <laughs> um, yeah, no, because, you know, in the first hot take, first hot take on this one. Have not read uh, the, the statement, although I have done some research, you know, sort of who the statement is in response to and who signed it and what they say. So Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah and I don't know. It's really interesting to me this phenomenon of lots of statements coming out. Yeah. It's it's yeah, weird. It's, kind it's of weird odd. to me. And and I'm like what is this signaling about the culture at large? Like, um, like I think it's signaling a very a very strong desire to take sides. Yeah. A very sort of, you know, fundamentalist tribalist kind of kind of impulse. And I think it's affecting the left as well as the right. Yeah, I think so. So yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. So hopefully we can get more into like the meta commentary about the culture. And plus, we- I have to say it the people who signed this declaration are obsessed with the reformers. And so something along the lines of Luther's 95 Theses or the Westminster Confession would really appeal to them. And I, I, I right. genuinely think that's what they're emulating. Right. And let's all admit it uh, Martin Luther was the archetypal social justice warrior, <laughs> annoying social justice warrior. <laughs> <laughs> he was an interesting guy. He was a rabble rouser. Th- yes. I mean, no, current current social justice warriors would would eat him alive. He certainly Here's the thing. He was not a conservative and so I find it fascinating when modern conser- conservatives sort of take him as their model. He was an interesting guy. Yeah, hopefully we can get more into that. Also, before we start out, I'm aware that I probably turned off you know, three fourths of the internet by calling myself a social justice warrior. Eh. Get the fuck over yourself, you <laughs> snowflake. Ah. <laughs> okay, but that aside, there are excesses on the left, and hopefully we can talk about that. Of and, course. And I'm critical of those excesses. Oh, yeah. And the name social justice warrior has gotten a really bad name because of those excesses. I jokingly call myself a social justice warrior kind of ironically, but beneath all that, I do care deeply about social justice and I am still on the left, even though there are these excesses on both the right and the left. And hopefully mm-hmm. we can talk about that. Well, and I think I think it's important to say that if I were to call myself a social justice warrior, I think the baggage I would be trying to avoid is this. I care about all people. I genuinely care about the rights of all people. Yes. And I think sometimes in advocating for people groups that have traditionally been oppressed or marginalized, that the left does not always articulate their stance that they are for human rights. Because quite frankly, some folks have more 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 rights than others. It's just true. It's just kind of, it's just true. Like, it's just a thing. It is is a lived experience. And so in over-articulating the left's support for people who have experienced oppression or marginalization, I think, ironically, sometimes 
people who are not oppressed or marginalized by greater culture, by culture generally, feel offended or left out. And I guess my response to that is, of course I want you to have rights because I want everyone to have rights. The thing is, you have them. <laughs> right. And yeah, yeah and, and you know, I also have to say that they're like I like Danielle, I care about all people, all social groups, and that does in fact include underprivileged white working class people. Absolutely. Of course. Yeah. Of course it does. Mm-hmm. Um they're I worry about class issues. I worry, I am concerned about economic disparity. All of that is real. And so it's complicated. All right, well... I, I have more thoughts, but but we will never start this statement if we don't <laughs> if move we on. If we don't get going. Sometimes like these preliminary statements can last for the entire first half. All of the caveats. All of the caveats. And mm-hmm. um, okay, so uh, shall we just go ahead and launch in or do you want to give some background of this statement? So as far as I can tell, and I'm op- completely open to correction on this because, you know, I'm looking online, I'm doing some Googling and I could be wrong. As far as I can tell, it was written by John MacArthur, yeah, who is a pastor of Grace Community Church. And you know what? I don't even know where Grace Community Church is. And I believe that it's non-denominational. But again, could be wrong. Open to correction. People, People on Twitter. Tell me. Tell hive me. mind. Hive mind. Yeah. <laughs> tell correct me us. So uh, John MacArthur. And then, you know, the website gives a list of initial signers and then more signers. I feel like the ones who are very interesting to me, one in particular who's very interesting to me, is that uh, Kelly Monroe Kohlberg signed in the second batch of signers. And she is apparently the president of the American Association of Evangelicals, for what that's worth. Yeah. So, you know, and there are like some podcasters on here and some pastors. Which podcasters out of curiosity? Uh, Let's see. There's someone named Dwayne Atkinson of the BAR podcast network. I had not heard oh, of him. Oh, B- uh, uh, okay. Yeah, I, that name rings a bell. And there's, I was also, again, I didn't do as much research as you made it sound like, um, but I was intrigued <laughs> by the fact that someone... Well, you did more than me. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that someone named Summer Yeager of Sheologians signed the statement in the second batch of shine- signers. I would love okay. to know more about her. that, you know. Okay. Who's she? Where's she coming from? And, you know, just a, a wide variety. Again, most I, th- I believe mostly pastors or, or executive directors of ministries. Yeah. Um, and the initial batch, and there are people who would jump on me for noting this, are mostly male. Yeah. Uh, in fact, most of the signers are, are male. Um, I didn't look into the, you know, racial background of the signers as much. I do know, you know, John MacArthur is not a person of color. Um, but, you know, just things to note. Yeah, something that's really interesting to me about this is so I have been following the the social justice warrior wars and identity politics wars and mm-hmm. free speech wars in kind of the secular sphere on the internet for a long time now. I think it's all really fascinating and very complicated and it's interesting to see that battle now enter the evangelical sphere. And you know, and so, you know, I've been listening to people like Sam Harris, who's an asshole, but is very interesting. And he is anti-social justice warrior. And then I, and so I've been I've been listening to this and watching it. And it, a lot of it centers around identity politics. And mm-hmm. it's just very, very fascinating to me now that it has entered the evangelical world. 
Yeah. So shall we shall we move on to the introduction of the statement? Oh, yes, please. Okay. The introduction for the statement on social justice and the gospel. It says, in view of questionable sociological, psychological, and political theories presently permeating our culture and making inroads into Christian church, we wish to clarify certain key Christian doctrines and ethical principles prescribed in God's word. Clarity on these issues will fortify believers and churches to withstand an onslaught of dangerous and false teachings that threaten the gospel, misrepresent scripture, and lead people away from the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Specifically, we are deeply concerned that values borrowed from secular culture are currently undermining scripture in the areas of race and ethnicity, manhood and womanhood, and human sexuality. The Bible's teaching on each of these subjects is being challenged under the broad and somewhat nebulous rubric of concern for social justice. If the doctrines of God's word are not uncompromisingly reasserted and defended at these points, there is every reason to anticipate that these dangerous ideas and corrupted moral values will spread their influence into other realms of biblical doctrines and principles. We submit these affirmations and denials for public consideration, not with a pretense of ecclesiastical authority, I appreciate that, but Mm. with an urgency that is mixed with deep joy and sincere sorrow. The rapidity with which these deadly ideas have spread from the culture at large into churches and Christian organizations, including some that are evangelical and reformed, necessitates the issuing of this statement now. In the process of considering these matters, we have been reminded of the essentials of the faith once for all handed down to the saints, and we are recommitted to contend for it. We have a great Lord and Savior, and it is a privilege to defend his gospel, regardless of cost or consequence. Nevertheless, while we rejoice in that privilege, we grieve that in doing so, we know we are taking a stand against the positions of some teachers whom we have long regarded as faithful and trustworthy spiritual guides. It is our earnest prayer that our brothers and sisters will stand firm on the gospel and avoid being blown to and fro by every culture cultural trend that seeks to move the Church of Christ off course. We must remain steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. The Apostle Paul's warning to the Colossians is greatly needed today. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. The document that follows is an attempt to heed that apostolic command. We invite others who share our concerns and convictions to unite with us in reasserting our unwavering commitment to the teachings of God's word articulated in this statement. Therefore, for the glory of God among his church and throughout society, we offer the following affirmations and denials. Let's break that down. Yes, let's. Before we do that, though, 
I forgot to mention at the top of the show, really, really important thing here. Preston, who is a patron of mine, is the one who first brought this statement to my attention. Oh, thanks, Preston. Yeah. So, Preston, yeah. Uh, the show is dedicated to you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, he was the one who requested that I do a, a series on sacred tension about this statement. So thank you, Preston, Yay, for bringing Preston. this to my attention. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. Anyway. Oh, let's break this down. First of all, I'm honestly, oh gosh, I'm so, I've encountered so many things like this that I'm not even surprised, shocked, or really annoyed. I'm just tired. Yeah, me too. I'm tired of the fear mongering. I'm tired of the slippery slope arguments. I'm tired of the assertion that, quote, scripture is clear as though there were only one interpretation. The the bunk about claiming no ecclesiastical authority is their sort of is their nod to the Reformation. But then they sort of just just throw cast that aside when they claim to be heeding an apostolic command, you know, to it just. That is a good point. Yeah. They, if you have no ecclesiastical authority, then why in the world are you putting forth this statement? <laughs> if you have, if you claim no special sort of guidance from the Holy Spirit because of your status as an ordained person, why in the world are you interpreting scripture for others? Why, in other words, why are you putting this forth as a statement instead of a dialogue? There you go. Why are yeah. you putting this forth as a statement instead of a conversation? Mm-hmm. If you have no ecclesiastical authority, then it seems to me that the correct approach is one of dialogue and conversation, not right. put, not issuing not issuing an ultimatum. Exactly. That says we're right, you're wrong, haha. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. It, there there <laughs> is that kind of interesting it's, it's paradox so within it's a so lot strange. of yeah. yeah, it's an interesting paradox within a lot of Protestant traditions, isn't mm-hmm. it? Is they claim unity and an authoritative voice without being able to lay claim to the kind of ecclesiastical authority that would make that happen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we've covered so many of these statements now <laughs> that I'm just <sighs> like, meh. Guys, okay, fine. It's like... Fear-mongering, slippery slope, the end of the world is coming because all the other people are wrong. We're the only ones who are right because the Bible says X. Inflexibility, be afraid listen to us. So from the very beginning, there's the issue of posture. What posture is correct posture or what posture is healthy posture? The posture of dialogue, ecumenical dialogue, the posture of learning and humility and being a student and and engaging in conversation yeah. versus the siege mentality. And so from the very beginning, I'm getting more of a siege mentality posture here. And I will posit that that is not a healthy posture. I've, I've talked about this some in the Revoice series that Timothy and I just did. But I'm less concerned now with being right and more concerned with posture. So I want to have a posture of humility and compassion and understanding my cognitive biases and understanding that I may not have all the answers and that maybe everyone around me is not the enemy, especially those who disagree with me. Well, and that my perspective is necessarily limited. I am one person coming from one perspective. Yes. I have only experienced life as a white woman. Like I, I have not experienced life through any other lens. And so 
yeah, no, I I don't have all the answers. I I could never issue a statement like this because me too. I just don't have all the answers. Me too, because I've yeah. been wrong far more often than I've been right. Like I've had to change my mind so much on so many things. I feel like there's a lot to break down in this introduction, but I'm just kind of bored of it. Yeah, I mean, honestly. I feel like we've we've done this before. We've been through this yeah. before. The the fear mongering, this sort of evangelical conviction or conservative conviction that if things change culture will end the world will end yeah the stance of you know militaristic siege mentality of we are under attack and we must we must stand our ground men <laughs> and al- always men um and uh and this slippery slope argument very familiar you know oh my gosh things are changing and if they change then they'll change more and then we'll all be doomed Right. And yeah, no, it's it's pretty familiar to me anyway. Yeah. If listeners are interested, you can go listen to the Nashville Statement series, yeah. uh, which I did with Matt Langston. You can listen to the Danver Statement series, mm-hmm. which I did with Danielle and Donald. And then the Gender Apocalypse series, which was about the mission statement of the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And um, those are all reasons why I feel like yeah. I'm done with this Yeah, those are, those are, we have covered yeah. so much of this. So mm-hmm. go check out those several gargantuan series for a rundown. Also, of course, I would love to hear, as usual, I would love to hear from people on the opposing side. Yeah. What do you think of what we're saying here in this episode? Mm-hmm. I have, as of yet, heard nothing, except for one person. One person from the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood did tweet to me their statement on domestic abuse. I'm glad they have one. Which I, I'm glad they yeah. have one, but it was also very underwhelming, and maybe we can talk about that later. But any, anyway, mm-hmm. okay. So shall we move on to the affirmations and denials? Let's do. Okay. So affirmations uh, and denials. Scripture. We affirm mm-hmm. that the Bible is God's word breathed out by him it is inerrant infallible and the final authority for determining what is true what we must believe and what is right how we must live all truth claims and ethical standards must be tested by god's final word which is scripture alone bullshit yeah um yeah and not not that i don't believe that the bible is the inspired word of god i absolutely do But to claim, quote unquote, scripture alone is a misleading statement because we are human beings with brains, experiences and lenses. We are always interpreting. Yeah, it's bullshit. Always. There's no such thing as scripture alone. Solely scripture does not exist. It is an impossibility. Because you are a human being reading that verse. You are not a brain. (laughs) Okay, here's this. You're not a perfectly clear-sighted logical brain void no. of context floating in a vat reading the bible no not at all Mm-mm. you you have lenses and the the fundamentalist denial of lens the fundamentalist mm-hmm. denial of context interpretation and interpretation context, perspective even though i have watched problem. fundamentalists interpret and give context in areas where they felt that it was beneficial or necessary right i've watched it happen they simply it it seems to me that i have also seen them deny that it happens absolutely which is fascinating it is fascinating yeah for more on that read peter ends yeah so we're setting it up for a big problem here it is an the bible is inerrant infallible and the final authority Mm -hmm. Uh, when you set up 
a condition like that, everything else that follows is going to be corrupted, in my opinion. When you set up a standard, when you set up a here is the absolute truth within this container, anything outside of that must conform to that absolute truth, then then you're setting up a mutated and broken form broken method of determining what is true. And so we're we're just set up for failure from the get-go. Because truth exists outside of scripture. There is the holy scripture of reality. There is the holy scripture of science. There is the holy scripture of experience, uh, which is why in the Episcopal tradition uh, we we understand truth through the th- through the three pillars of reason, uh, reason, tradition, and scripture. Why there's the Wesleyan quadrilateral, uh, reason, experience, tradition, and scripture. So it so there's this acknowledgement in a lot of these traditions that it takes more than just scripture. (laughs) But when you say that there is no other source of truth, no other source of, of truth and that, that truth has what, whatever truth is outside of scripture must align with the words of scripture because it is inerrant and infallible that is setting you up for failure. And so for, for those who aren't as, as in the know, as, as Stephen and I who've been steeped in this sort of thing since our since our salad days. We've been rotting. We've been <laughs> fermenting. We in have this been marinade. fertilized with all of this. Yes. <laughs> uh, a lot of I mean, here's the thing. Scripture doesn't often talk about itself. No. Which is interesting. And so the idea of the infallibility of scripture was actually a doctrine developed by the church after scripture was finished being written. Also the canonization of scripture was was done by the Catholic Church church anyway we're just going to ignore all of that for now <laughs> um, and talk about second timothy three sixteen, which is the verse that you know this sort of doctrine of the infallibility inerrancy and god-breathedness of scripture is based on and it says all scripture is god-breathed and is useful for teaching rebuking correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of god may be thoroughly equipped for every good work and you know what that's true. But yeah. it does not say anything about inerrancy or infallibility. Like, it just doesn't say that. It yeah. says it is God-breathed and it's useful. There, there's kind of the glaring issue that the Bible does not say about itself what fundamentalism says, says about the Bible, says about claiming the Bible. to only be going by the Bible. It's a weird... Matryoshka doll of <laughs> yeah. of layers of it's, huh it, yeah it's really self contradictory and so from the very get go we have this set of contradictions. Also, the Bible is just so unbelievably unclear and complex, fascinating and old and bizarre, and anyone who denies that is simply delusional underestimating the Bible. underestimating and disrespecting scripture and this is what really bothers me is that anyone who says that the bible is infallible and inerrant and and clear above all clear mm-hmm. that and that and then they go on to say that this is a high view of scripture to have the gall to take this complex messy often ugly often horrific, at times sublime document that encapsulates different eras and different cultures and different understandings of God 
in different languages, to take that and to boil it down into this single frame, this single film of meaning that it is literal and inerrant and infallible and that, we've got the right we've got the right in one and we, Our and version, we have yeah and we have the right version We're and the right, right because, interpretation yes. that is the lowest of the low view of scripture i have a, to agree a high view of scripture accepts scripture for what it is which is complex messy violent brutal ugly and often beautiful and sublime and it's our mm-hmm. tradition for for those of us who are christians it is our tradition and that doesn't mean it is true in every way. That doesn't mean it got everything right, but it means that it is our heritage. And so we engage with it. We mo- we evolve from it because it is our heritage. Hmm. To me, to call scripture inerrant, uh, infallible, it's, hmm, it's so interesting because, you know, God, the spirit of God in inspiring the scriptures used fallen human beings to write all of it down you know, to, to do all of this. And I wonder if that sort of view of the scriptures informs the fundamentalist view of how theology is done. In other words, if God working through fallen human beings created infallible scriptures, then does God working through fallible human beings create infallible theology? Right. Like, I just don't know. And I don't think people claim that. No. Uh, but I wonder if unconsciously the connection is being made. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, what I see here is an attempt. I don't know if this idea is fully formed, but I'm going to try to articulate it anyway. When someone has a, I'm not going to, I'm, that one isn't fully formed yet. I'm going <laughs> to move on. Um, right. Maybe I'll be able to articulate <laughs> it better later. Let's go on to the we deny. We're still on scripture. Oh boy. The denials. Right. Here the not. Yep. We deny that Christian belief, character, or conduct can be dictated by any other authority. And we deny that the postmodern ideologies derived from intersectionality, radical feminism, and critical race theory are consistent with biblical teaching. So then why don't they share all their property in common? (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, what? (laughs) We further... We further deny that competency to teach on any biblical issue comes from any qualification for spiritual people other than clear understanding and simple communication of what is revealed in Scripture. Yeah, back to this clear and simple thing. Yeah. I know that that's comforting. I know that that's what people want. It's just not what we get. It's not true. It's not what we get. If Shakespeare isn't clear, the Bible (laughs) won't be. And that's and that's just it. You you can't you can't you can't. And and you know when you read that when you read the Second uh, Timothy verse, I I remember when I was a missionary in Youth with a Mission, and mm-hmm. that verse was brought up over and over and over and over again, sure. and also at our Christian high school we went to together, which was I think even more conservative than YWAM. They brought that verse up over and over and over again in Bible class, and mm-hmm. you know, as proof of infallibility, as proof of inerrancy. And, and that's I just not what it says. And, and even as like you know, a derpy fifteen-year-old, I was like, that. Hang on. Hang on. <laughs> that's not what that just says. Just a moment. That's not what that says. No. And there's nothing within Scripture that says that about itself. Mm-mm. I think what, okay, here's what I was trying to say earlier. I think that there is a need to systematize and almost science, 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 Oh, what's to science to verb uh, uh, science as a verb <laughs> to science to think scientifically to think yeah to yeah. to codify 
There we go. To codify these hypotheses that people have about the world mm. and about scripture because it's comforting, because it bolsters a sense of security. Oh, I've experienced the yeah. comfort of, of surety. Of, of systematized, oh, sure. codified, mm-hmm. this equals that equals that equals that. And it's this weird, like, scientism. Mathematical theology. Mathematical theology or scientism. It, it's this codified, formulaic, systematic stuff, but it's it's all cloud. It's it's all. It looks firm. It's like a cloud. It looks firm from the distance, but when you get up close, it's just mm-hmm. nothing. It's just air. Because the God I read about in Scripture appeared as a pillar of fire. He appeared as a cloud. He appeared as you know all of these sort of nebulous, mysterious, hard to put your finger on things. You read the visions of the prophets, and they are they are drug trips. What in the world, Ezekiel? And and you look at Jesus. Even he taught in parables. He was an itinerant rabbi who went around telling stories. Yeah. And so the God I see revealed in Scripture is not that. He it isn't Einstein. The God in in Scripture is not like this this Einsteinian like formulae like God scientist setting down formulas <laughs> for us to follow. Setting down formulas for you know for, salvation for, for salvation. Hmm. Um, so let's break down this statement. Uh, we deny that Christian belief, character, or conduct can be dictated by any other authority, and we deny that the postmodern ideologies derived from intersectionality, radical feminism, and critical race theory are consistent with biblical teaching. Okay, so this is really yeah. interesting to me yeah. because I I feel like postmodern has come to mean so little. It's such a nebulous term Mm -hmm. now that it is almost meaningless because, I mean, and and within philosophy, it has specific meanings. You know, these words have... Definitions. Specific definitions. Mm -hmm. I don't see engagement with any of that. No. Postmodernism is basically a skepticism it, it, postmodernism is essentially skepticism of the systems and our ability to know anything. It is it is a it is like the ultimate form of skepticism. Well, and, and what could be more threatening to fundamentalism? Yeah, yeah. It, <laughs> yeah. it's like the ultimate form of skepticism. But intersectionality and and I can't help but feel that postmodernism is actually at odds with a lot of these disciplines Mm. that they claim it flows out of. Now, I'm not a philosopher. I have a very peripheral understanding of all of this. But but intersectionality is basically the idea that there are these intersecting identities that operate on a hierarchy of oppression. So homosexuality is an oppressed identity within this culture being a woman is an oppressed identity being black being mentally ill uh being disabled these are all underprivileged these are all underprivileged identities not through exert often they aren't underprivileged through premeditation on the part of the majority but simply no. because that is how the systems have worked out and so this is and so it is less a statement of the innate will or goodness or evil of the majority and more a statement of how systems operate and so intersectionality basically states that you know if you're a black disabled woman 
who's queer, then then they are on the bottom of the totem pole. There is the there are these intersections of identities. Well, postmodernism would want to deconstruct all that shit. Yes, would Post- want to say, but <laughs> postmodernism, yeah. you know, postmodernism would want to to deconstruct all that. Postmodernism mm-hmm. would want to question our very ability ability to understand what is queer postmodernism would want to and it has it does postmodernist thinkers rebel against the idea of these foundational identities to begin with from what i understand people who understand philosophy who understand this much better than me can comment it seems to me that fundamentalism has this relationship with science in general science proposes hypotheses, tests them according to the scientific method, and develops theories. And for many Christians, for example, the theory of evolution is very problematic because it conflicts with their interpretation of scripture. They, they call it contrary to scripture because their interpretation can't allow for it. And so I feel like the same relationship is happening here. Essentially, they're, they're, they're calling... So, so sociology is, is a science, it is a science. It takes facts. It analyzes them. It proposes hypotheses. Oh, yeah. They it did say that them. at the introduction. Yeah. It tests them according to the scientific method. Psychology is a science. And and here's the other thing mm-hmm. about science is that science is not a set of claims. Science is a method. Yes. Science mm-hmm. does not have claims. Well, it does, but then it tests them according but, to but a method. But those claims yeah. are always subject to, to the revision. scientific method. Yeah, those, mm-hmm. those claims to are always... and revision and refinement. And I think that there's often this confusion there about what science is. It isn't a set of claims. It is mm-hmm. a set of methods. And I think people mistake it with, you know, confuse it with religion, which is a set of claims yes, <laughs> very often. Yes, which is, in fact, a set of claims, yeah. yeah. And so, yeah, no, I mean, I think I feel like I see that that conflict here again of we have this set of claims according to our interpretation of the Bible, which gives us these claims. You know, the findings of science we don't think matches up with with how we're interpreting scripture and therefore science is wrong and bad and has nothing to say. Yeah, no, it's it's fascinating how that sort of how those things interact. I find that endlessly fascinating. I do find it fascinating. So it's basically saying that these various disciplines are like dark arts. Mm -hmm. You know, that critical theory, uh, radical feminism, critical race theory, uh, postmodernism, intersectionality, that there's nothing good or true that can come from these. That's basically what this is saying, that these Mm -hmm. various disciplines are fundamentally false and the dark arts. And to which to which I just want to say, okay. (laughs) to to which I just want to say, if God is truth, Mm -hmm. then truth is truth, no matter where it comes from. Truth is truth, no matter where we find it. And if there is truth within these disciplines, we don't have to be so scared of it. We don't have to hide and cower from critic from, uh, you know, uh, from how did they put it from facts from radical feminism we don't have to cower Mm -hmm. away from radical feminism because if it's true then it's true and it will hold up to scrutiny and we figure it out communally we figure out what is true through discourse and we don't have to be afraid of this shit and so to to bar these these whole disciplines Mm -hmm. to shut down these entire disciplines and areas of study as just fundamentally untrue Mm -hmm. is a incredibly arrogant, be incredibly 
dangerous and demonizing because what if they have something that is it's true to say even if 90 percent of it is wrong even if 99 percent of it is wrong what if there's that 10 percent or one percent that is true and that you need mm-hmm. and all that aside the very act of engaging with it is healthy. The very act of engaging with ideas is healthy, regardless of whether they are true or not. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. You know, so I just I want to and I want to comment on that. This last sentence. This last sentence to me is a doozy. Um, <laughs> we further deny that compens- comp- competency to teach on any biblical issue comes from any qualification for spiritual people other than clear understanding and simple communication of what is revealed in scripture and from what they've said that's dangerous they can, as fuck. well no from what they've said as far as i can tell what they mean by clear understanding is that that person agrees with their interpretation with them yeah well also <laughs> here's the thing you do not want someone who just knows the bible to be your marital counselor no Oh, please and there no. are, and this has been a problem so much in the evangelical world, where someone who who's just an uncredentialed pastor, someone who has mm-hmm. an evangelical understanding of scripture, because suddenly, as we've established, psychology is dangerous. Because if yeah. we, as we have established, the priesthood of science, and and I think that the skepticism of science is honestly a Protestant skepticism of priesthood and authority in general. Possibly, I think it. I think it's a Protestant mm. thing. I have this theory. I have a theory okay. that the American distrust of science is the resentment towards a priestly class that knows things that you don't. Huh. That knows things that you Possibly. can't know because yeah. they have the telescopes. And the electron microscopes and, and the specialization and, and the, the specialization and, to know things yeah. that we simply can't know and mm-hmm. to see things that we simply can't know. And hmm. I think we have this cultural resentment towards that. that hey, it's, a it's a possibility. That's a working that's a working theory yeah. of mine. Hmm. But oh where I was going somewhere with this. What was I saying? <laughs> um, distrust of science, a scientific priesthood. Protestants don't like that. Um why why did I bring up science? Science is a method. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, this is what I was saying. The, someone who just has an education in the Bible is not qualified to be your therapist. Mm-hmm. Someone who has an education in the Bible is not qualified to be a scientist. You I mean, wouldn't... I would challenge someone who would sign this statement to say, go see a doctor who had only ever studied the Bible. Right. <laughs> or, or you don't want to get onto an airplane where the pilot only has, has only an education. scripture. <laughs> has only ever studied scripture. I mean, yeah. these are specialized fields that... Exist for a reason. That exist for a reason. Mm-hmm. And so this idea that good biblical leadership or that good Christian leadership character and conduct is can be dictate should not be dictated by anything other than the bible is on its face bullshit you want your therapist to know the skills and insights of psychology you want a scientist to be a scientist you want a technician to be able to work on your car and not just quote scripture at you 
quote scripture at your car quote scripture be healed, <laughs> be healed. Oh, no. oh my god Did, oh. do you remember do you remember down the road there was that i think it's it might still be open the uh computers for christ yes <laughs> there was a, like are the computers christian are the anyway. computers christian are they converted <laughs> so when i was doing online courses with uh, at liberty university i was doing a math and computer course and no joke, the computer course at the beginning of each m- module was uh, a little sermon from the professor. And he would always find a way to tie in computer stuff into the Bible. And my favorite was when we were covering Microsoft Word that week. And he was like, so we're talking about Microsoft Word that this week. And I can't help but be reminded of the Word of God. Oh! <laughs> it's like a bad dad joke. It's like yeah. a theological bad dad joke. No, it's also... And then I think during that same time, I was on a worship team. This is a tangent, but it's whatever. I, I was on a worship team for a local evangelical church. And I just remember listening to these people talk and thinking, I thought this was how non-Christians talked when they were making fun of Christians. Aww. But no, they're no. actually talking like this in no. like that that hyper breathy sanctimonious saying God and every you know God is every other word and father and daddy and calling God daddy and you know just so so much emotion and pathos in their words and and breathy and long winded <laughs> and I was like this is oh. how non-christians on youtube make fun of christians and apparently they're doing a decent impression they're doing they did a very decent impression of some yeah anyway i don't know why i got on that tangent but anyway (laughs) um regarding regarding the philosophy bit i'm i don't know much about this bullshit i'm I'm not very well educated on this, but I will link some resources in the description that will provide yeah, some explanations of the conflicts here of, of lumping all these things together because postmodernism is its own philosophy. It's its own thing. Is its own thing. Its own concept. And the problem is that postmodern has become such a boogeyman. It exactly. has become such a it's it's become such a catch all phrase for for just, any yeah. for any cultural for any secular thing that Christians don't like or that or that conservatives don't like and that is not a good way to um to discuss anything. Yeah, it's a shutdown word. It is. It's yeah. a shutdown mm-hmm. word. So, I'm going to provide some links in the show notes which will give a more accurate description of what postmodernism is and these various disciplines and why postmodernism is at odds with some of these things. Yeah. Anyway, um let me see how we're doing on time. I I knew it. <laughs> All right. Well, so we have gone through the introduction and the first affirmation and denial on scripture. We could edit this down, though, probably, to be... We, we can definitely edit it down. Should edit, we go on to the second one? Let's do the second one, because the second one I actually agree with. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so, let's, mm-hmm. we, so we're going to move on to the second affirmation and denial in the Imago Dei. We affirm that God created every person equally in his own image. As divine image bearers, all people are inestimable, inestimable. I can't say that word. Inestimable. 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 
There we go. All people have inestimable value and dignity before God and deserve honor, respect, and protection. Everyone has been created by God and for God. We deny that God-given roles, socioeconomic status, ethnicity, religion, sex, or physical condition, or, or any other property of a person either negates or contributes to that individual's worth as an image bearer of God. Okay. I I'm, agree. I'm down. Yeah. This is great. What I find interesting here is that they acknowledge socioeconomic status, ethnicity, religion, mm -hmm. and sex or physical condition. Yeah. As any or any other property of a person that that those things either negates or contributes to that individual's worth as an image bearer of God. That's sure, fantastic. Absolutely. I agree 100% yes. with that. Uh-huh. And then we <laughs> interpret that so differently. How do you think they're interpreting this? Basically, they're saying God views everyone as equal. Therefore, therefore they are. Therefore, I'm not well, sure. they are. Yeah. The ultimately, they should be. Ultimately, they ought to be. But yeah, no. the problem is that they aren't. Well, and that's just it. I feel like we're gonna get to that. I feel like we're really Stephen. Sorry. I feel like we're really <laughs> truly gonna get to that. Okay. Um, so let's let's go on. I okay. Like that one was yes, I agree. But here's a here's a perfect example of how a text can say something and be interpreted very differently so by two different sets of people. Yeah. yeah. We we yeah. were talking about that with the Revoice series as well. Mm -hmm. Like how just how much we agree on, and then how. Drastically, how drastically that works out in practice. We diverge. How yeah. drastically differently okay. that works out. Moving on. Yeah. Justice. We affirm that since he is holy, righteous, and just, God requires those who bear his image to live justly in the world. This includes showing appropriate respect to every person and giving to each one what he or she is due. We affirm that societies must establish laws to correct injustices that have been imposed through cultural prejudice. That's great. I agree. That's great. Yeah. What? Okay. All right. But now we come to the denial. Okay, we deny that true justice can be culturally defined or that standards of justice that are merely socially constructed can be imposed with the same authority as those that are derived from Scripture. We further deny that Christians can live justly in the world under any principles other than the biblical standard of righteousness. Relativism, socially constructed standards of truth or morality, and notions of virtue and vice that are constantly in flux cannot result in authentic justice. Oh, boy. Okay. So, so you practice Jubilee? Like every seven years, you're going to forgive all the debts and stuff? Cool. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> you're going to be kind to, Deal. kind to foreigners and, you know, leave a portion of your field to be gleaned by people who don't have enough food? Okay. Okay. Anyway, are yeah. you going to stone Sorry. me? Just, we're gonna we're gonna be super we're gonna be super literal here, I guess. Or yeah. are or are you going to stone me to death? Yeah, or that. I mean, there are the really good extremes like the year of jubilee, and then there are the really horrific extremes like stoning me to death. Yep, and uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> are merely socially constructed. I would love to hear a definition of that. I really would. Okay, so basically what they're saying is so justice is good, but justice has to be defined by scripture, not by these outside influences of feminism and mm -hmm. relativism and you know, moral standards and philosophies that are always in flux. Mm -hmm. To which I want to say these things are in flux because they're self-correcting. Right. Unlike and actually you may think that's that uh biblical tradition 
is not self-correcting, but in the words of the reformers, the church is reformed and, and keeps, keeps reforming. reforming. <laughs> the church is reformed. And keeps reforming. Exactly. Yeah. And so even, and so these things are constantly in flux. Yes. And I'm that's, just, I'm flabbergasted. And that's a good thing. And to call that relativism is absurd. It isn't relative, it isn't relativism. You know, the, uh, the disciplines of sociology and science and psychology and feminism and all these things, they are in flux because they are self-correcting. They and to say that that is therefore relativistic is nonsense because they are self-reforming because they believe that there is ultimately well, truth. To behave as though sort of a Protestant or reform interpretation of scripture has never changed or self-corrected is, is, is not absurd. true. Or to is say that, that biblical... That even within scripture, that scripture itself does not evolve through the course of its writing hmm. is absurd. There is precedent with there is precedent set within scripture for growth. Hmm. There is precedent set within scripture itself for how because the writers themselves changed. The writers themselves and the characters themselves evolve. The view of God evolves. And so there is precedent for evolution within the wider world. And I'm not saying that God changed. I'm saying that the, no. the view of him changed. And and so to say that these disciplines are in flux because of relativism is absurd. They're, they are in flux because of because a respect for truth. Because this is science. Because this is science. And to some degree. And, and yes, also to some degree, standards change, cultural norms change. Yeah, I wonder what they would say to things, though, that, I don't know, Things change. They do. It's true. <laughs> so so there's this false dichotomy here between the world around us and these various di disciplines which are un which are constantly in flux and relativistic. Let's see. Relativism, socially constructed standards of truth and morality and notions of virtue and vice that are constantly in flux. And these things cannot result in authentic justice. They are operating under the assumption that the Bible is not also in flux, that our interpretation mm -hmm. of the Bible is not also in flux. So, mm -hmm. so there, it's this false dichotomy that the Bible, our understanding of the Bible has always been the same. It yep. has always been. It's always been and, just this. And let us not forget the Catholic social movement. Which is still alive and well. Yeah, the, the yeah. Cath and uh, well, what's her nuts? Who, who founded it. I mean, people who have a quote-unquote biblical worldview who come to a radically different view. Oh, but Stephen, those are Catholics and they're just beyond the... Sorry. I read one of the suggested resources in the it, like at the end of this and one of the articles simply just just goes right in with an attack on the you know Roman Catholicism and how it you know it was terrible for 1500 years and then the reformers came and fixed it all. Um <laughs> trying to think if I have any more thoughts on this. Um, I think I'm ready to move. To yeah. yeah. I I think so too. Hmm. All right, can I read this one? Yeah, I, totally. We should, okay, number four, God's law. We affirm that God's law, as summarized in the Ten Commandments, more succinctly summarized in the two great commandment commandments, and manifested in Jesus Christ, ooh, and I quote, is the only standard of unchanging righteousness. Violation of that law is what constitutes sin. Only those, huh? Not the rest of scripture? Not... All the other, anyway, okay, all right. Well, the Ten Commandments says nothing about homosexuality, so I guess that's fine. 
Do you see what I'm saying? Like, yeah. this is so strange. I also don't think that the Ten Commandments is, is, so strange. is the pinnacle of ethics. I really don't. You know, I hear so many people say that the Ten Commandments is the pinnacle of, of, of ethics for humanity. This is a conversation for a later time, and I might yeah. write an article about it. I mean, but they mention the two great commandments. They do. Love your neighbor and as yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart yeah. and strength. And I'm like, okay, awesome. Okay, awesome. Yeah. So what if loving your neighbor as yourself means lifting up oppressed people groups? Is maybe relinquishing some of your privilege so that other people may come more fully into their their rights. Right. I, this is very confusing. I am very confused, (laughs) especially after they just got done saying all of scripture, all of scripture, all of scripture, scripture, all of scripture. Yeah, I'm I'm fascinated because and here and here's the question. And I know that the answer to this would be a flat. No, it doesn't. But what happens when the two greatest commandments conflict with parts of scripture? Because it most oh. certainly does. Well, Stephen, let's go on to the denial, because that might shed a little light on okay. this. Okay. We deny that any obligation that does not arise from God's commandments can be legitimately imposed on Christians as a prescription for righteous living. Okay. We further deny the legitimacy of any charge of sin or call to repentance that does not arise from a violation of God's commandments. And here again, we run into an issue of interpretation. Okay, so my so my brain yeah. is my brain is going a bit fuzzy. Oh that my gosh. any obligation that does not arise from God's commandments can be legitimately imposed on Christians as a prescription for righteous living. We further deny the legitimacy of any charge of sin or repentance that does not arise from a violation of God's commandments. Okay, so yeah. in other words, if it isn't in the Ten Commandments, then they shouldn't repent of it. That's that's kind of how I'm reading this. Because beyond the Ten Commandments, <laughs> the commands Ooh. in Scripture are very unclear, and well, which commands to enact well, and which ones not to. I mean, Unle- but God is quite clear to you know clothe the naked, sure, feed, feed the, the poor, hungry. feed the widow. Mm-hmm. Take care, care for widows and orphans. Which that's, that's definitely there. I'm afraid not in the Ten Commandments. Which I'm afraid I have to say is social justice. I mean, there are many conservatives who would argue that that can be done through the means of private charity. <laughs> so what they're saying is there sh- is social justice is fine. It just can't be this identity politics bullshit. I suppose. Or feminist I, I, that's bullshit. That's kind of what I'm getting from this. In other words, we want social justice. We just don't want this inconvenient social justice that makes us examine our assumptions our assumptions or levels levels of our privilege and levels of privilege now i'm i feel like i'm going to get to well no i'm going to hold off on that statement let's do one more and then we'll call it a show all right can i read this one too yeah totally we affirm that all people are connected to adam both naturally and federally interesting word Hmm. therefore because of original sin everyone is born under the curse of god's law and all break his commandments through sin There is no difference in the condition of sinners due to age, ethnicity, or sex. All are depraved in their faculties and all stand condemned before God's law. All human relationships, systems, and institutions have been affected by sin. Okay, which which is fine, which is great, which would suggest that various (sighs) institutions might... Might therefore be operating in sinful ways. Might be operating in sinful ways and that our conduct and our systems... Ooh, 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 
the denial. Here's okay. what it is. Okay. Here's what it is, Stephen. Let's, let's do it. Here's what it is. We deny that, other than the previously stated connection to Adam, any person is morally culpable for another person's sin. Although families, groups, and nations can sin collectively, which seems like a contradiction of that previous statement, yeah. and cultures cultures can be dis- predisposo- predisposed to particular sins, subsequent generations share the collective guilt of their ancestors only if they approve and embrace or attempt to justify those sins. Before God, each person must repent and confess his or her own sins in order to receive forgiveness. We further deny that one's ethnicity establishes any necessary connection to any particular sin. See, here's where we get into the meat of this. Well, okay, so so let me be careful when I say, I want to say this really carefully to make sure that I don't misstep here in my thinking. Mm. I don't feel like... Okay, so so there is the acknowledgement that cultures yes. and institutions yes. and groups can behave in bad ways, but that people should not be held accountable or, or people should not repent yeah. for the actions of their ancestors. To me, I don't feel like I am being asked to repent for the actions of of my ancestors who were slave owners. The Bradfords were slave owners and had a plantation in the Charlotte area. Mm -hmm. I feel like I am being asked to simply acknowledge the history. To acknowledge the history, but also to acknowledge the ways that you benefit from a system that is inherently biased to give more consideration, protection, and benefit to someone with your skin color exactly and i have benefited from this family well and that's the other thing you need to acknowledge that there are generational benefits material benefits bestowed on certain people because of these these generational sins because of the sins of one's ancestors like i don't know what what primary school could my father not attend because of his race none well also he could go to any single one of them the and fact i benefit from the from my family's whiteness going back generations i materially benefit from that th- yes exactly and and the fact that my that there are these generations of wealth my family and and i'm not and i am not rich I'm. I live in what I like to call genteel poverty. Yes, um, <laughs> bohemian. <laughs> and squalor. and my parents aren't rich, but my f- my family has old money. Like my mm-hmm. extended family. Yeah. My grandparents. My great uncles. One of my great uncles is a is a was a three star general. Mm-hmm. They. There is old Southern money and education there. My family is a Davidson family. Every man. Almost just about every man in the mm-hmm. lineage has gone to Davidson. And you think that I don't benefit from that? Yeah. Then you're full of shit. Then you're crazy. And I don't I'm not being asked to repent of that. I am I am a person of privilege and I can't change that. Mm-hmm. I cannot change the fact that I have these benefits, that I have this privilege and that I have these luxuries afforded to me. I cannot change that. All I'm being asked to do is to acknowledge it, is to acknowledge that I have a better head start than 
the black community that lives literally that lived literally right across the street from my parents' house here in our small town. So the area right across that right across the street from my parents' house, the the little road that goes down the hill, that was designated the black area of our town for mm-hmm. generations. They had their own little shabby movie theater there because they couldn't go to any of the other places. They had their own little and it's still impoverished. Yeah. And you yeah. think that the that my generational benefits don't <laughs> mean something and that their long history yeah. of slavery and then poverty and then generational poverty and generational lack of education doesn't affect doesn't them? affect them. Okay, we're not being asked to repent of anything. No, not I'm well, not being asked to I and even if I yeah. wanted to, even if I wanted to repent of my slave owning ancestors, I can't. They I, were the ones who did it. They were the ones who did it. I can't take asked, responsibility. I, we're not being asked to, to I'm not being asked to repent for slavery. I'm being asked to acknowledge that because my family, for example, my one branch of my family came to the United States in the 1620s. Yes. And has been building wealth ever since, has been building social stability and wealth ever since. And no one took that away from them because of the color of their skin. And therefore, I benefit from all of that. Yes. I do. Yes. I receive material benefits because of the stability and the generational benefits that were able to be passed and were able to be built up. And I'm sorry, slavery disrupted all of that. And the ensuing reconstruction and Jim Crow and new Jim Crow have disrupted all yes. of that for many communities of color. So we don't, in other words, we don't have time to grovel in the sins of our ancestors. We don't have time. What we need to do, those of us with privilege, is to use our privilege to create a better world. What, we're, what is being asked of us is, is not to repent of ancestral guilt, but to use our privilege to open our eyes, be aware of the ways in which we might perpetuate abuse, be aware of the ways we might perpetuate racism and, and systematic racism within this country, and use our privilege to turn that around. That is what is being asked of us. And I think, I think what the statement is saying is that that is supposedly beyond the purview of Christianity, beyond the purview of the gospel, because it is not specifically mentioned in the Ten Commandments. But I would argue that the two greatest commandments cover that in spades. Yes. And that the New Testament covers that in spades. Well, also the the year of jubilee thing that you brought up. Sure. Bring, I mean, there is an acknowledgement that there are underprivileged people. People who, now, yeah, no, who are held captive essentially by systems of oppression. So, so here's a thought that I've been having and it might be more appropriate for later, but I, I think I'm going to go ahead and put it out there as kind of a caveat for this conversation, whatever ensues is that all language is approximate mm-hmm. right okay there is this understanding that all language is approximate and so when we talk about group identity and groups being oppressed that doesn't mean that all gay people are oppressed in the same ways and that doesn't mean that all gay people are it means that gay people are more likely to be oppressed this doesn't mean that every single black person is oppressed 
It no. means that if you're black, you are more likely to, to be, be oppressed, oppressed in certain ways that are connected to your to your skin race. color. This is all approximation here. So I think one mm-hmm. of the problems that I run into in these conversations is people see these conversations in terms of absolutes. And maybe that's a failure of communication. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe I should say many black people but or well, many lgbt people but the but the but thing the is the thing is there are certain people who no matter no matter how say let's say wealthy or or are um, still denied from well would still let's let's say you know you go I, i'm trying to think of a, of a really good example there are conditions that still affect minorities no matter how successful or happy they may be yes That's, there you go okay no so so this is all very complicated so that is systemic oppression mm-hmm. Systemic oppression is just stuff that is boiled, that is hard baked into into certain systems, into certain systems, yeah. and will affect all people of a certain minority. But this is also not to say that all minorities are oppressed in the same ways, and that all mm-hmm. people within certain minorities have the same experiences. Of mm-hmm. course, they don't. No. That we're talking in approximations here. And when when those systems have conspired to keep a a large percentage of people from the kind of life liberty and pursuit of happiness that you know that we're that that we're striving to to give people that's when i would say action is needed yeah we we need to act against i those systems i feel like i understand repent i i just have a different view than they apparently do let's let's take let's take i don't know Let's take Zacchaeus, for example. Yes. Um, and granted, this is an example of an individual who used an oppressive system to defraud people. He had the weight of the Roman Empire behind him. What he did was not exactly legal, but certainly condoned by the relevant governing authorities. He took he collected too many taxes. He, he robbed people, essentially, by collecting too much tax and skimming off the top. Uh, and this was an accepted, you know, way of being in, in Roman society at the time in Judea. Zacchaeus appears in the Gospels, for those, for those who may be wondering. When he meets Jesus, he repents of this behavior. But you know what else he does? He gives all the money back. Exactly. Sorry. Like, he takes, he takes actual action in the world. And granted, as I say, it was not, it was not his father who collected too many taxes, but let's say his father had collected too many taxes. Let's say it was his father who was guilty of that particular sin. Would Zacchaeus, when he met Jesus, then maybe perhaps be under a similar obligation to say, oh my gosh, my father committed this particular sin. I am in possession of stolen goods. Maybe I should give them back. I feel like, (laughs) I also feel like I need to clarify some here just because I feel like there's a lot of potential for misunderstanding. Sure. Do I experience enormous grief and even shame over the fact that my ancestors were slave owners? Yes, I do. Yeah. Oh my God, it crushes me. Like there there are times when it has crushed me. Are they saying that that shame is bad? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm just not sure. Are they saying that I shouldn't feel that regret and that grief that my family line? And this is not very long ago, mind you. This is only a couple of, you know, this is only several generations back. This is Mm -hmm. still, you know, that's still in my blood. Yeah. 
this isn't to say that I don't experience deep grief. So when I say that I can't repent on their behalf or, or that I can't, I don't know, d- am I making sense? I think so. I, when I say that I can't repent for, for them, for them, I'm not saying that I don't experience grief and that I don't turn the culture and that I don't want to. And I'm not saying that I don't want to turn the culture around Mm -hmm. and that there aren't systemic issues that and systemic problems that I that have been passed down to me and attitudes that are sinful that have been passed down to me. This is this doesn't that doesn't mean any of that. All it means is that I I don't carry the weight of their guilt. I carry the weight of of what they gave me of benefiting of from that benefiting sin. i carry the weight of the attitudes that i have received being a white boy in the appalachian mountains being raised here i carry the weight of the grief that that is part of my family history but i don't carry their guilt because only because they're the ones who did it not me does that all make sense i think so i hope so i mean i don't know and maybe maybe i'm going to take a minute and just express an analogy that was helpful to me in discussions of privilege because we've bandied that word around. Yes. You know, let's say and I'm it because it is not to say people from quote unquote privileged groups don't work hard for what they have. It's not to say that they don't struggle in life, that bad things don't happen to them, that they don't experience hardship. It is saying that they don't experience those things because of their gender, the color of their skin, their sexual orientation. So I I kind of liken it to two people who are pushing big boulders. And let's say that maybe those boulders are the same size and the same mass, they're the same weight. But one person is pushing it along a flat surface. Yes. And the other person is pushing it up a steep incline. Yes. Who is working harder to push that boulder yeah and is the person who is pushing it along a flat surface are they not working hard yes they are but if they stop pushing for one instant the boulder does not roll back on top of them and they're not exerting as much energy they don't have to they have to exert as much energy as it takes to move the boulder along a flat surface the person rolling moving it up the hill has to exert a lot more energy and they can't stop for a single second or it will roll back down to the bottom of the hill and so, yeah, no, that's 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 my analogy. Like. No, that's a great analogy. <laughs> and and actually, while you were saying that, I I, th- I think I had a, a little moment of clarity here. Mm. Dear listeners, I'm working this out as I'm talking about it. Yeah, same. Like I'm a I'm a white guy who's clueless. And really, it's only been in the past couple of years that I've become aware of the issue of white privilege. And I will fully admit that I have responded with the same defensiveness and the same guilt and the same shame and the same denial that a lot that it seems like the people writing this statement have responded with when i have been confronted with issues of race i have felt very uncomfortable and have been tempted to deny it or deflect and it's that white fragility at work and it's really only been in the past two or three years that i've been able to start to get over that and i fully own that i fully admit that here it is You know, the statement says, before God, each person must repent and confess his or her own sins in order to receive forgiveness. I feel like the stuff that was handed down to me is, in fact, my own sin. Hmm. I feel like the attitudes that are baked into this system that I was born into, the, the lessons that I learned 
from being a fam being in a family that did own slaves even though it was generations ago and even though my family has since denounced it i feel like the lessons that have traveled down through the lines even though they came from earlier ancestors because i owned them and enacted them it is my sin so I can't... Meaning owned and enacted those attitudes and lessons. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so e- even though they traveled down time from people who are now dead, mm. I still need to repent of it because I have lived it. And and so I'm not repenting of on... Be- owning slaves. I'm not repenting no. of owning slaves. I am repenting of my own sin for having lived out the prejudices and biases and racism that I mean, being in that family I mean goodness gracious creates does that going, make sense if we're going to talk about original sin I mean we're connected to more than just Adam exactly I'm connected to my family I'm connected to the south I am a child of the south I was mm-hmm. raised in Appalachia and and no I'm not going to re- I can't repent of owning slaves but I repent of the attitudes that came from those slave owners which I personally have enacted and it is and and it and it is this interconnected web of sin of which I am a part and mm. I am repenting of being part of that web does that make sense It does I That's think. that's what I'm trying to say and so yeah. I'm part of it so this statement I feel like just glosses over the true depth here of what is going on. I feel like there is this need among many of us, and I understand this need because I have it. I have this need to be the lone wolf. I have this need Mm -hmm. to be the individual. to view fairness as being judged only according to my actions, my beliefs, my principles— but we're all interconnected. We're we're so interconnected. To quote John Donne, "No man is an island entire of himself," and we have this Western thing, this hmm. this American need to be seen as an individual. And oh my goodness, I'm an Enneagram Four. I am <laughs> I'm this white male thing. creative. Being an individual is my thing, and I. And I'm a believer in individuality. Sure. However, I think it is deeply offensive to people when th- when that is exposed to not always be true. Because we have this deep innate need in this culture to be individuals. To stand on your own two feet. To stand on your own two your feet. Bootstraps and, and it yeah. is highly offensive and uncomfortable to us. Well, and people really believe, I think, the myth of equality of opportunity. Yeah. And it's just not true. Not true. Yeah. Th- I mean, y- oh, we'll get to equality yeah, of opportunity Yeah, no, we, we can talk about that because that was, that was mentioned in one of the resource articles. Yeah. Who boy. So, <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, it, we'll, it's, it's a myth. It's a very foundational myth to America, but it's a myth. And, and I'm sure we'll get into this more later, but I see this dichotomy between individualism versus group identity. Yeah. And I will posit, I want to put forth that it is not, in fact, a dichotomy, that we all have individual identity. It's a spectrum. It's a spectrum. (laughs) And and I think we actually, you know, uh, Jaron, I was recently listening to an interview with Jaron Lanier, who is a, a, a computer guy. He was saying that we have this switch inside of us. We have these two modalities. We have the lone wolf and then we have the pack. And these are both instincts within us. They're both good and 
not so good depending on the circumstance. And they both get switched on and off depending on the circumstance, sometimes for good, sometimes for ill. So I feel like we have this, a white guys in particular generally have a cultural bias Mm -hmm. towards being the lone wolf. And we are deeply uncomfortable when it is exposed to us that maybe we do have a pack. Maybe we do have a culture and maybe there are other cultures and other packs that are less privileged. Typically, typically, white straight men, particularly white straight men who are, say, athletic or have some other sort of, you know, thing that our culture values, our culture at large values, they y'all enjoy the privilege of being, quote, the default human. Y'all are sort of, you know, human default. And so don't necessarily, yeah, don't necessarily identify with others in a group uh, and and have the privilege of, of sort of operating as though as though you are truly an individual and don't have to acknowledge, yeah, the ways in which identity affects other people. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. So much more to talk about here, so but much. we're going to have to bring this episode to a close. Thank you so much, Danielle. Yeah. This has been fun. This has been interesting. We're going to turn this into a multi-parter as usual. Thank you there so are much. There so many of these. That's there just it. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm trying to count them. Unless I'm counting wrong, there are 15. And how many did we get through? Five. Oh, my God. These affirmations and denials. Okay, well, ho- I'm oh. hoping that this won't turn into a monster of a series. I've been doing lots of gigantic series. series if you're yeah. tired of it, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Bitching anyway, on Twitter, I don't but, know. but for those of you who yeah. who enjoy it, thanks for coming along for the ride. I would love to hear your thoughts. I would love to hear your comments. And uh, please let me know what you think. You can find me on Twitter at Stephen B. Long. You can find me at my website, sbradfordlong.com, where you can email me and read my dozens of articles on faith, doubt, and mental health and LGBT issues and whatnot. Also, if you want to support this show... Uh, please go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. And for just $1 a month or $5 a month, if you're feeling generous, you will get a separate patrons-only podcast called The House of Heretics, where Justin and I have long conversations, unedited conversations about faith and doubt and science and all sorts of things, sex. We talk about weird stuff on that show (laughs) stuff that should probably be edited people are really enjoying it and i've been hearing a lot from the patrons and they've really been loving it also this show is really impossible without uh those donations those shows are these shows are impossible without my patrons because i already work 40 hours a week Plus, I'm a yoga teacher, so I'm putting in 50 to 60 hour weeks uh, with the podcast thrown in. So I'm hoping that the show is going to start making more money so that I can start doing more shows and having more guests and upgrading to better equipment and so on and so forth. And I really need to start making more of a living off of this or else it just won't be sustainable. So please, I ask you if you are able to support my work, please do so. If you are unable to financially support my work, the best thing to do is to simply listen to it, enjoy it, and share it with your friends, and spread the word. Well, the music is by the Jelly Rocks from the album Bang and Whimper. You can find it on Spotify and iTunes. 
The artwork is by Justin Caleb Bryant. This show is written and edited by me, Stephen Long, and is a production of Rock Candy Media. We will see you next week. Bye.